The next two weeks, yours truly is going to be playing some worship. We're going to have uh, Tolu and Ian bringing us the word. Uh, so really what I saw here was, okay, that's four weeks uh, from after today. That's four weeks uh, before I'd really be able to get back into Luke's gospel. And the next text we were going to deal with in Luke is actually Mary and Martha, which some of you know it, some of you don't. Uh, I don't have time to go into it, but the bottom line is that story is massively significant, I think, for our culture here in Silicon Valley and the pressures that are on us. So I am planning on wanting to spend more than just a week on that. And so rather than have one message today and then another one like a month or a month and a half out, I thought, oh, okay, let's do something a little different. And it just so happens that God had kind of been moving on my heart with something from Exodus. Um, so we're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning. Um, chapter 17, if you got a Bible, open it up. Uh, second book of the Old Testament there, the book of Exodus, chapter 17. If you need a Bible, um, raise your hand and one of these good looking gentlemen will get one to you. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Let me read it and pray and uh, we'll dive in. It says this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us, or why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah, which means testing in the Hebrew, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So let's, let's pray, guys. God, it's my prayer that we would be quiet before you this morning. It's my prayer that we would be still and know that you are the Lord. That we would not be um, moving from one thing to the next. Okay, we're at church, let's rush on to lunch, then let's rush on to whatever else we have in the afternoon and the Warriors playoff game tonight or whatever it is. We're always looking to the next thing. God, I pray you'd stop that in us here this morning. I pray you'd slow us down. 
I pray that you'd speak. I pray you'd speak to us right in the wilderness that we're in. Whatever form it's taking, however it's manifesting itself in our lives, God, I pray that you'd speak. You'd bring grace. You'd bring living water through the crucified, resurrected Lord. Help me, I pray, to communicate your word, your will to your people. It's in your name I ask these things. Amen. Um, got a lot for us this morning. So one of my prayers, honestly, is that God would help me edit on the fly. Because as I was diving in, I just kept thinking about this text and uh, saw more and more. And I hope, uh, one of the reasons why I pray that God would slow us down and stop thinking about the next thing is because I, I want to sit in this with you guys. I think God has some things to say. I think he wants to meet us in the midst of our trials and and bring grace uh, in a way that perhaps we lose sight of and have forgotten. Um, As I was preparing my my message last week, um, when we dealt with the Good Samaritan, uh, we were in Luke chapter 10 there, and that awesome parable Jesus gives with the Good Samaritan. And you remember how it begins. Uh, it begins with this lawyer standing up in verse 25, and we looked at how this lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. He stood up to put Jesus to the test. Well, as I was kind of doing some background work uh, a couple weeks ago on that idea of putting Jesus or God to the test, what ended up happening was I I, I came uh, to this text here in Exodus 17, where the people of Israel are putting God to the test in the wilderness. And uh, something about God's response to uh, uh, Israel, Moses, in this scenario, and their grumbling and putting him to the test, really caught my eye. Uh, and I had not noticed it to this point. And it's that part there in uh, verse, let's see, where was that? Verse 5, where he tells Moses, listen, I want you to take the staff with which you struck the Nile. That little qualification, the staff with which you struck the Nile, caught my eye. Why did God say that? Why did God do that? Well, we'll get to that, hopefully by the end of this message. But that's why I titled the sermon the way that I did, the staff with which you struck the Nile. I want us to start thinking about that. It drew drew me into this story, and uh, hopefully uh, you will see why. Before we get rolling here, since we are just kind of dropping into the book of Exodus, some of you may be familiar with uh, the Bible. Some of you may have seen whatever that, I don't know, it wasn't Pixar, but, you know, the the Exodus movie, the cartoon that was out. But some of us may be confused by what's even happening in Exodus 17 in our text here. So I wanted to give a high-level summary real quick for you, and then we will um, dive in. But Basically, since Joseph and kind of Israel had come into Egypt due to famine and other things, uh, there arose a, a pharaoh, basically, that had no relation to uh, the previous uh, Joseph and other things, didn't know the good that Israel had done. And as Israel's growing among them, this pharaoh becomes uh, intimidated by the people of Israel and ends up saying, listen, let's enslave them uh, so that they make sure they know their place. Now, about 430 years or so, Israel is in Egypt. They're struggling. They're in bondage. They cry out to the Lord. 
The Lord hears them. And what does he do? He shows up to Moses on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Uh, all, all these are actually the same name for the same place in this burning bush. He says, listen, I'm gonna, I have a plan for my people. I'm going to call them out. I'm going to save. I'm going to use you to bring them out. We're going to bring them into uh, what we'd call maybe the promised land or Canaan or a land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to bring you out of slavery and into freedom. Well, ways that God goes about doing this, uh, plagues, right? Uh, you remember that there are ten different plagues that God strikes the Egyptians with in a way uh, just kind of showing these are my people, you're going to let them go, and it kind of climaxes in the striking down of the firstborn males, what kind of leads us towards Passover and things. But then as Israel is going out and, and Pharaoh wants him gone, well, then suddenly he realizes, wait a minute, maybe I, I want these guys back. I'm going to lose my, my labor, my free labor here, comes down after him. And then you've got the Red Sea moment where the people are freaking out at the edge of the Red Sea, but Moses holds up this staff, right? And the waters part and the people walk through on dry ground and then the waters close over the Egyptians. Then the people of Israel celebrate. Exodus 15 is just a song to God about all that they had seen and all that they had done. And then it's kind of like they turn around and realize, oh, wait a minute. We're not in the promised land yet. We're not in Canaan yet. I don't see any milk flowing or honey flowing yet. We're in the wilderness. So... Case by case, there's a testing, there's a trial, there's deficiency of, of, of water. So they cry out in protest, grumbling against God. God miraculously provides, Exodus 15, 22 to 25. They are, there's a, there's a deficiency of food after that. They cry out in protest, God, what are you doing? Uh, God miraculously provides, that's Exodus 16. And this really takes us to the fringes of our text now in Exodus 17. Where what we see is that a few weeks, maybe perhaps as much as a couple of months have passed, uh, and, 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 and yet here we are again, though the people have seen God do so many amazing things, they are without water once again in the wilderness, and they cry out in protest. They grumble against the Lord. So there are three things that we are going to look at this morning. Um, you probably see them there on your handout. First, a wilderness grumbling, second, a striking provision, and uh, if I can get us there, third, an unspeakable privilege, an unspeakable privilege. So first, a wilderness grumbling. The way I want to bring this out, I just want to ask three questions um, at this point, and we'll try to use these questions to kind of back into the text a little bit. Um, but first, question I think we need to ask is, what exactly is the wilderness? What exactly is it? I don't know if you've ever kind of played those word association games where you're going to say a word and you tell me what, what, what uh, you're thinking, what that word makes you think of. Well, I wonder, when I say wilderness, what is it that you associate with that word? I can tell you what it is for me, and it might be different for you, um, but for me, it, it's not a bad thing. What I, when I hear wilderness, what I think of is adventure, Exploration, 
pocket knives, compasses, campfires, backpacking. I hear stuff that I want to be doing, quite frankly, right now. I, I, I think of uh, a movie that, man, I don't know how this came to my mind as I was preparing this. Uh, but I, probably none of you have seen this. Did anybody see, a, uh, what was it called? The Adventures of the Wilderness Family? It, nobody even has any clue. I'm, I'm going to now torture my children with this movie since I remembered it. As a kid, we, I loved watching this movie, the, the Adventures of the Wilderness Family. It's about this family who's like living in L.A., I think, if I recall. And they're like, man, this, this concrete jungle stuff is lame. I hate the congestion. I hate all this. Let's get into the wilderness and we'll find life. We'll find family values. We'll find adventure and love and joy and all that. And that's kind of my associations with the word. If I were just to kind of remove myself from what I know the Bible has to say about it, that's how I think about it. The best summer of my life was spent uh, backpacking through the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in the wilderness. The wilderness is where I go to Sabbath, to rest, to just ask my kids and do anything I can to get out into the hills around here. When the Bible talks about wilderness, though, it's talking about something so different. Like what I just described to you, this place where I find rest and life and the place that I want to go, that's actually how they would talk about the promised land. You want to know what the wilderness is? The wilderness is actually the place that is kind of standing in between them and the place they want to go. It's standing in between them and the promised land and the Sabbath rest and the joy and the fun and the pleasure. That's what the wilderness is for them. It is a place of trial, of hardship, of deficiency, of little water, little food, little comfort. It's a desert. It's the place that exists between Egypt and Canaan. It's the place that exists between the house of slavery and the land of promise. That's the wilderness. That's where Israel finds themselves in our text. But I wonder if you realize that that is precisely where you and I find ourselves here this morning as well. Whatever's going on in your life, however bad or good you think it is, you are in the wilderness according to the Bible. Now, I'll get into that uh, more in a moment, but... I realize I need to unmask this idea of the wilderness for us because we kind of sit in here. It's a hot day out there. You never even know it because the AC is going. Praise God. Sometimes that's not the case in this school. Uh, it's cool. It's nice. You got padded chairs, right? Where I went to church before, it was those cold metal ones. You guys got it nice. This is good. You got smartphones in your pocket. You got modern luxuries, you know, at your disposal. You say, I'm not in the wilderness. I'm not in a place where there's lack and deficiency and I, a lot, I'm Silicon Valley. This is, this is the apex of the modern world right here. It's wilderness. What we need to understand is that what for Israel was a literal wilderness, for us uh, in the New Testament, as a New Testament, New Covenant people of God, takes on more of kind of spiritual dimensionality. The wilderness, sure, it's not that we're like actually out in the desert right now going, where in the world are we going to find water? But it takes on a, a spiritual kind of dimension as we move from the people of Israel in the Old Testament to the New Testament people of God, to you and I. 
I wonder if you realize, it's, it's amazing, but what we actually have, what God gives us in the Old Testament and with the people of Israel is essentially the whole redemptive, the whole of redemptive history in miniature, in tangible, physical uh, forms, okay? Uh, like a good teacher, if you're trying to teach kids uh, abstract concepts, how do you do it? You do it by giving them concrete things to do with their hands. Well, that's what God is doing in the Old Testament with Israel. He's wanting us to understand something deeper, but he's going to get there through physical form. So what do we have with the people of Israel? We have a people who are in bondage to, to Pharaoh in slavery. And then God strikes the, you know, the firstborn lamb, right? And the people come out and they are brought through the wilderness to the land of promise, to Canaan, to the new, to, or I'm sorry, oh, that was wrong, to Jerusalem, right? And then what do we have in the New Testament? What do we have as Jesus arrives on the scene and takes us deeper into these realities? But this, we were in bondage. Not to Pharaoh, not in Egypt, but to Satan, to sin, to death. We were in slavery, in a a deeper slavery than even Israel could have known. That's what starts to come into view for us. And then God strikes his firstborn son, the Lamb of God, for us, and we come out free. And where does he lead us but to the land of promise, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, Revelation tells us. And what that means, if the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem is the world to come, is heaven is what is waiting at the end of this story for us. It means that where we are now, this whole earthly existence is wilderness pilgrimage. That's why Paul would say, Philippians and other places, man, this place isn't your home. You're citizens in heaven here. passing through your sojourners or as peter would say in um first peter 1 1 he's writing his epistle to this church and he says listen you guys are exiles on the earth why why are we exiles or the greek there could mean things like refugees or pilgrims sojourners why well because our home is in heaven and if you're not where your home is Well, you're where you kind of don't belong and you're passing through. This is our wilderness, brothers and sisters. So I wonder if you realize you can kind of look around and you can feel the cushion there in your seat. You can feel the AC blowing on you, your smartphones vibrating in your pocket. But I am telling you right now, you are in the wilderness. And some of you can give a hearty amen to that. Some of you feel it. I want you to know that um, that this is the case, whether you are dealing with a serious trial right now, like some ser- we wouldn't hesitate to call that a wilderness moment, right? Like when the doctor comes back with the you know scans or whatever, and you've got cancer, or mom and dad just passed away or lost your job and if you're not careful here you're going to lose your house and then what's going to happen with your kids and everything we wouldn't hesitate to call that wilderness but i want you to understand as i'm attempting to unmask this idea i want you to see it in the normal everyday stuff too 
The wilderness for us is not just these big things, but it's also, I wonder if you've been there, it's when you're doing dishes at the end of a long day, your feet are aching, and all you really want to do is get on the couch and maybe binge watch some Netflix or eat some ice cream or just kick back and relax. There's wilderness pressing in on you there. Or when you're coming home from work and yet again you're sitting in what would have otherwise, could have otherwise, anywhere anywhere else in the world would have been a 10-minute drive and it is an hour or more because of Bay Area traffic. There's wilderness pressing in on you there. For us, you want to know where the wilderness is showing up these days? It's coming in for my wife and I about 3 a.m. in the form of Bella. Okay, my my middle daughter. Uh, I have no idea why this is happening. Uh, praise God, we had a good week. I think uh, this last week, but man, up to this point, it has been two, three times a a, a week where she will come in in the middle of the night, maybe three, maybe four a.m. I'm in that deep REM cycle sleep that you don't want to disturb me in. She goes, I peed my bed again. You know, we're just like, oh my goodness. All right, you get the sheets, you get the... I mean, we got it down now. You know, we know what we're doing. What is my four-year-old doing, Lord? The wilderness is pressing in, in these moments. So I don't know where it is showing up for you. I don't know how it's manifesting itself in your life, but I know it's there. And I hope even now uh, some things are starting to be unmasked and you're starting to see, oh, that's the wilderness. Now, second question to ask then is, what is God up to in the wilderness? What is God doing with this? Now, this whole idea um, that God is up to something in the wilderness kind of presupposes uh, the, the, the sense that God is in fact leading us into it. That God has a purpose for us. That God, it's not just like God's going, I don't know, you figure it out. God's actually leading us there. And I would make the case that God actually does some of his best work in the wilderness. I'm going to show you this. This idea is actually um, right on the surface of our text there in verse 1, that God is leading us into this. I want you to see this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Why? Why did they move? Why did they go to this place where there was no water? According to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. You remember, God was leading them through a pillar of of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And so as he went, they followed and he moved them according to the command of the Lord, to a place deeper into the wilderness where there would be no water, and he knew it. What is God up to in the wilderness? What is he doing here? He's doing some of his best work. But I think you could boil down what he's up to to two things, uh, namely, first, to test, and second, to teach. The idea is that the wilderness exposes our hearts, it exposes our false alliances, it exposes stuff that we've kind of got going on here that when all is well, we don't really see. But then it's also the place where he comes in and he brings healing. And he teaches us about his mercy, he teaches us about his ways, he, he meets us in that place and mends our broken hearts. 
when God brings us into the wilderness, um, truly he is bringing us into circumstances we clearly cannot manage on our own resources. That's the idea. He takes us to some place that we don't have the answer for. We don't have the resources. There's no water. I can't come up with water in this scenario. You realize how dependent we are on God for everything. You can't create anything that you need to survive. You think you can. I mean, just yesterday, our power goes out at our house for the second time in a week. It reminds us how powerless we are. We think we're great. All our food's going to go bad. If the pipes bust, where am I going to get water? You just realize we build this edifice kind of around ourselves that supports our idea that we are autonomous and self-sufficient. The wilderness exposes us for what we are, utterly dependent upon God, utterly in need of his mercy and provision. The idea really, the wilderness just exposes what is true in luxury. We just don't see it. You see, when we have everything that we need, when we, when we are living and the power's humming and the water's flowing from our sink, we don't think we need him. We don't see our dependency. We don't see his provision there, even though he is just as much. But he brings us out into the wilderness to help us see more clearly. The, the interesting thing, the picture in my mind, um, is this idea of like a, like a mirage, right? You, you, you typically think, um, that mirages are what happen actually in the wilderness, in the desert, in those places that are barren, and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're like, you've seen those movies or the cartoons or whatever where, you know, they're just, they've lost all their water, they're starting to hallucinate, they think they see something, you know, the palms or the, wa- or the, the river, and there's people doing cannonballs into the natural spring, and so then they run, and it's nothing but sand. Like we think mirages happen in the wilderness, in the desert, but God is going to flip that on us and say, no, 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 the mirage for you guys and for me actually happens when we have plenty. It happens in the place of luxury. That's when we start thinking that we're all good, we're all that, we've got it, we've got it worked out, we've got the resources for this. Check out my 401k, everything's working right. And we have this mirage of self-sufficiency and autonomy that we buy into. And he brings us into the wilderness, not to show us a mirage, but to show us reality. Isn't that amazing? I don't know why that came out so creepy like that, but reality. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's why God would warn Israel through Moses just before they were entering the promised land. And you want to know what he says? This is what he says. This is Deuteronomy 8. 11 through 17. Take care, Israel, lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. You start to go back to that mirage. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
Don't go back to the mirage. Don't forget the clarity of sight that was yours in the wilderness when you realized, I don't have the resources for anything, and anything that comes to me comes from the hand of a gracious God. This next breath I owe to his grace. Not to mention the padded chairs and the smartphones and the air conditioning. So God brings us into the wilderness to bring us back to himself. He does his best work there. I don't know what he's doing with you. I don't know what he's exposing. I don't know what the test is, the trial. But I do know what he's hoping to do, and that is to do you good in the end. To expose things that have been true all along and to bring you to him in a fuller way than perhaps you've been before. Third question that I want to ask here under this first point is this. How do we often respond in the wilderness? So we've seen that we're in it. We've seen what God's up to in it. Hopefully you can kind of say, oh, it's actually good. Even though it's hard, it's good. He's up to good things. And you would hope, therefore, that when we uh, find ourselves in the wilderness, when it's pressing in on us again, that we would respond favorably to it. That we would go, all right, Lord, what's up now? I know that Romans 5 says this is the way that you kind of build character and hope and life and love in me. How are you going to do it now? You'd hope we'd respond favorably, but instead we're so often like Israel, right? Where they see his his provision, they grumble again. See his miraculous provision, grumble again. See his provision, grumble again. They're not responding favorably, they are grumbling. I'll show you this, three different places in our text, maybe even four here. Verses 1 and 2, there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Verse 3, but the people thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? In verse 4, we're told that this grumbling gives way to violence so that Moses cries out, man, these people are going to stone me. That's how, that's how hairy this situation is getting. They're going to kill me. Even though I was the guy who rose my, rose my staff up over the, the Red Sea and they saw you do this stuff. Now, because they don't have water, they're ready to kill. And lest we think that all of this is really just them kind of grumbling, griping, having an issue, taking beef with Moses, the matter is made plain in verse 7. They tested the Lord. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us? Not just Moses, we don't like how you're doing this, but let's be real. We know this is God. We have a problem with God. Is he with us or not? He's brought us out here to kill us, didn't he? That's why we're in the wilderness, not up to good. So to be clear, every grumble, therefore, is an argument with the Almighty. Did you hear that? Every grumble is an argument with the Almighty. Anyone convicted guilty by that? Every grumble is an attack on the way in which God is running the universe. Your life in particular. 
Every grumble is a toddler trying to tell her daddy how to parent, which happens every day in my house. Every grumble says, in essence, if I were on the throne, I would do better. That's what a grumble is. It's an affront on God. Is God really among us? Because if he were God and he were good, certainly he wouldn't be doing this, right? A little grumble here or there to us may feel like a small thing. But what we come to find is that it's actually a massive thing. It's actually an incredibly significant moment where we are attacking him. So that moment, is that my child? Oh, okay, good, all right. For once it's not Levi. <laughs> Sounds like kids are dying in the back. This children's ministry is crazy. Repent! Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that moment when you're in Subway... And you ask for pepperoncinis on your sandwich because you want that little spice. And they didn't, they forgot. The lady forgot again. And you just want to kind of grumble. Let me a quick little vent about this. How could, I made it so clear. Listen to me. The wilderness is pressing in on you in that place. Do you catch that? Your heart is being exposed in the moment. God is wanting you to draw near to him. And he's wanting to heal some things. There's so much more than just missing pepperoncinis. It's incredible. Now, allow me to offer my sense as to why this is often the case. Why do we grumble? Um, when the gap between my expectations and reality is not closed by faith, grumbling quickly rises to fill the void. Did you hear that? I'll put it another way. When the gap between my will and God's will, what I want God to be doing in my life and what he's actually doing in my life isn't closed by faith. Grumbling quickly rises to fill the void. I want to make sure you hear that. The idea is this. Well, okay, here's my will. Here's what I want God to be doing, namely for Israel, it would have been promised land. It would have been land of milk and honey. Let's get there. You could do that in the Red Sea. Why in the world are we taking so long? That's what I want God to be doing. That's my will. Well, his will is back here in the wilderness somewhere. He's doing something. The two aren't lining up. And there's this gap, this growing gap in between his will for my life and my will. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do? What are we going to, how are we going to close that gap? Do we close it with grumbling? That's what's going to kind of fill the space? Or is it going to be faith? I've seen what you've done in the scriptures. Thank you for giving me that tangible picture in Israel. I've seen what you've done with the cross. I saw everybody think it was a failure, and you rose again on the third and said, no way. Doing something better than you could have ever imagined in that wilderness. I believe you can do it in my life as well, and that you're doing it right now, no matter how much it hurts. And the wilderness hurts. So... I wonder how you're responding. Now, we get to how God responds to us. This is what's so amazing. It's now the second point here, a striking provision. While we are in the midst of the wilderness crying out, is the Lord among us or not? I would say, man, if I am Yahweh at this point, I am ready to bring down judgment. Am I among you? Are you kidding me? Have you seen what I've been up to to this point? 
Think about all that these guys had seen. And you would think judgment is about to fall on the people of Israel, but instead, he does something we would never expect. We come to find out even further how God brings us into the wilderness, sure, to expose our hearts, but it's not so that he can shame us or or, or condemn us or kill us. It's so that he can heal us and teach us about his mercy and his love. And that's what we see in how he responds to Moses' cry for help. What does he tell Moses to do there in verses 5 and 6? The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. Taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Now, three, this time, quick observations that I want to bring out at this point. I'll do it by way of again asking a few questions. First, what is Moses to do? What does God call Moses to do here? Well, in a word, To strike. Strike, right? Verse 6b, you shall strike. The word strike there, nakah in the Hebrew, is a word of aggression, a word of violence. It is a word of judgment. In fact, it's a word that's already showed up numerous times in the book of Exodus, in particular with reference to what God was doing to Egypt with the plagues. He says this in Exodus 3.20, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it place judgment it is a word of judgment strike god tells moses now next question what is moses to strike in a word the rock the rock right you shall strike the rock god says there and water shall come out of it Well, the rock which Moses is to strike is further spoken of there at the beginning of verse 6 when he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Now, you may recall from that quick flyover I did, Horeb, the mount at Horeb is the same kind of another name for Mount Sinai. Or as it's spoken of, I think in Exodus 3.1, it's called the mountain of God. That's what Moses is called to strike in some way. The mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the place where God shows up first to Moses in that bush. And then it's the place where God is now leading them uh, to give them the law. And it's here, this place, that God is saying, strike that rock with a strike of judgment. Strike the mountain of God. The place where my presence has manifested itself. I will stand before you there. Presumably, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. Here I am, on the rock. Come and strike. Third question and observation. What is it that Moses is to strike the rock with? What is it? Well, in a word, the staff. But as I said in the intro, there's more. Verse 5, the second part. Take in your hand the staff, what? With which you struck the Nile. And go. Take in your hand the staff, strike that rock, the mountain of God. But let me make sure you know which staff I'm talking about, as if there were any other. God has reason for this qualification, as we'll see. Let me just put it this way for you, Moses. Take the staff with which you struck 
the Nile. And I saw that and I said, why? Why the staff that struck the Nile? The staff was used in virtually every plague. The striking of every plague, the staff was used. Why pick the first plague? The one that quite honestly seemed to be the least impressive because somehow or other, by demonic or whatever sort of powers, the magicians in Egypt were actually allowed to kind of mimic it. They were able to mimic it. Where Moses strikes the Nile, and if you remember, it, it turns the waters in Egypt there to blood, and the Nile was kind of the life source of Egypt. If things went wrong with the Nile, things went wrong in Egypt. He strikes it, the water turns to blood, the fish and everything in it die. Why choose that one? Like if I'm God and I am trying to identify the staff, listen to me, after the Red Sea, everything it refers to that Exodus moment. Everything, all the Psalms, all the, 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 the stuff going forward is, listen, I'm the one who brought you out and I parted the sea. I, I, I did that amazing thing there. The exodus moment. He's not going back to the first plague that kind of got things rolling. It's always about the Red Sea. I would think it would be, man, it's the staff that you held out over the Red Sea and the waters parted. Go get that staff. But instead it's the staff that struck the Nile. That's significant. What is God trying to get at there? Well, on my way to answering that question, um, let me show you uh, an amazing thing. All the stuff that we've just identified in these three questions and observations, really in one way or another, they're all preparing us to see uh, the work of Christ on the cross. That's what's so amazing at every point. God is, is leading his people in the wilderness there to his son. Jesus is God's gracious provision for a grumbling people. He is God's answer. He is God's response to our sin and our questioning and our grumbling. It's Jesus and his work on the cross that's being foreshadowed in these moments. Let me show you. Let me show you one by one. With regard to the first observation that Moses is called to strike Well, this is the very same word in Hebrew used to describe what God himself is going to do to the suffering servant in Isaiah. If you remember this, but we know that this, these are prophecies concerning the son, concerning Jesus. Let me read a few of these to you. Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave, this is, this is Jesus speaking basically. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Or Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isn't that amazing? Yahweh tells Moses, go ahead and strike. What he's picturing there is that strike that will come for his son on the cross. When not for his own sin, not for his own grumbling, not for his own judgment, for for the judgment due his people, he will be struck by God himself in wrath. 
so that we would be healed, so that water would come out and we would drink. Grumbling, rebellious sinners though we are. Regarding the second observation that Moses is called to strike the rock in particular, the the, the mount uh, there at Horeb or Mount Sinai or the mountain of God. Well, listen to me. Paul leaves us no room for doubt as to what this rock was picturing, what God was trying to teach us there. First Corinthians 10, uh, 1 through 4, Paul writes this. Our fathers, speaking of Israel here, We're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Isn't this amazing? So, well, I won't go there. I won't go there. Sorry. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. See, again, God's giving physical picture of what he's going to do at a deeper level. In the New Testament, with the arrival of his son. He's saying, listen, yep, you guys are going to be baptized. Then you're going to come, and today even we're going to enjoy uh, the communion meal, the Lord's table, where we will do what? Eat and drink. Grace of God. Manna and this water from a rock or the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing he's picturing with Israel. As he brings them through the Red Sea, their baptism into Moses, he feeds them manna from heaven, he brings them water from a rock. Jesus is the rock. The idea here, what's so amazing, is that it's like, okay, listen, God's response to us kind of, if you were to talk about kind of reflexes, Right, you know how when you go into a doctor's office and they kind of hit do that little rubber thing to your to your knee, and you're, if you're healthy, your knee is supposed to like kick up and do that little. That was probably too dramatic, but you know what I mean. You know, a little bit of that. Well, the amazing thing about our God is that when He is struck, or when we push on Him, or when we go, "Is the Lord really among us?" What's His reflex? It's not to strike back; it's to strike Himself. That's the heart of our God. That's his reflex for you and for me, is to strike himself. Paul makes it plain. Yes, it was inferred by the fact that God himself says, I'm standing there on that rock when you strike it. And it's the mountain of God. We've already called it that, Exodus 3.1. Yeah, you could have inferred you are striking me. That the curses, all the stuff, the judgment do, the breaking of the law, you're going to strike the very place I'm going to give the law, the holy sanctuary of God. You're striking it. Paul says, listen, that's exactly right. The rock was Christ. He was struck for us. Now, third and finally, uh, with regard to these observations here, we noted that Moses is to do all this with the staff that struck the Nile. What are we now to make of that? Well, here's what I'm thinking, given the whole constellation of thought and all the foreshadowings that we have seen up to this point. I think it's quite plain. When you consider 
what that miracle, what that plague was, striking with the staff a life source and turning it to death. Water turns to blood. Well, what God is doing here is in fact saying, listen, take that same staff that was used for judgment on Egypt and that judgment's going to fall on Jesus. His life is going to turn to death and blood is going to come forth. But here's the amazing thing about what our God is going to do. That blood will for you become water rushing out of the rock, giving you life in the wilderness. It's amazing. It's incredible. His death is actually what sustains us. It, it, it is God's provision for a grumbling people. That's why he would say throughout John's gospel, I'm bringing you living water. You're going to drink the, you have no idea you had access to this. But when I'm done there on the cross, when I have died and I have risen, you have access to a fountain you didn't even know was there. And we'll touch things deeper in you than you ever realized we could. This is perhaps why John in his gospel actually includes this strange detail. Um, when he's recording Jesus' death on the cross, do you remember this? It's kind of weird. Well, he, he, he brings this out. Could very well be with reference to this sort of idea. But Jesus is there on the cross. He's already died. And um, the, the soldier wanting to make sure thrust this spear into his side. Right. And then John records this for us. At once there came out from his side blood and water. And you could try to come up with different medicinal or medical reasons for that. And oh, here's a. But John thinks in terms of figure, he thinks at a, at a, at a deeper level. And I had to just sit there and go, huh. I wonder if what he's saying is just this very thing. That that staff that brought blood judgment when it struck Jesus is at the same time bringing water to us. I mean, Jesus himself says it even more plainly in John 6, 54. Whoever drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're not vampires. We're not doing some creepy cult thing. The idea is you and I deserve the judgment of God for our grumbling and our rebellion and our essentially striking him. But his reflex is not to come down in judgment on us with what we deserve. It's to come down on his son. So that his blood, his death in our place becomes the very source of our life and our sustenance in the wilderness. Now, third and and, and finally with regard to my initial headings, um, we've seen a wilderness grumbling, a striking uh, provision. Now this, just leave you with something quickly here, an unspeakable privilege Fast forward nearly 40 years, okay, to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. You can turn there later. Israel is still in the wilderness. They're still thirsty. They're still grumbling and complaining about it. Where's the water? What are you doing? You're here to kill us. Wish we had died with our forefathers who died in the wilderness uh, earlier. What does God tell Moses now? God says, all right, we're still going to bring water from the rock. Like Paul says, this rock followed them, followed them through their their wilderness wandering. God says, okay, we're still going to bring water from the rock. 
But here's what I want you to do, Moses. It doesn't need to be struck anymore. Instead, all you need to do is speak and water will come forth. Now, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of this scenario and how Moses disobeyed in anger and he strikes the rock twice, not just once. There's a lot of ministry implications for that, quite honestly. But all I want to bring out and leave you with here at the close is this, that Jesus has already been struck for you. Which means you have access to the grace of God now. You don't, listen, here's what happens, right? It happened to me even this morning. I, I grumbled at my wife. You want to know what I, what I think I need to do? I need to pay myself, pay, pay, pay something back. I need to atone. I need to make up. I need to, ah, oh, how could I? I'm about to preach a sermon on, 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 on not grumbling in the wilderness and I grumble on my way out the door. What a hypocrite. What a fool. Well, I tell you what, if I hadn't done that, I would have felt better about myself. So maybe if I can accrue some more credit by, by, by doing good things, I will be able to feel better about preaching messages like this in the future. But for now, I guess nothing's left for me but to just kind of self-afflict and strike myself on the back. But what God is saying here is, no, the rock has already been struck. You go, you bring your grumbling heart, you bring the stuff that's still wrong in you in the midst of the wilderness as I expose it and you speak. You speak to the one who says, touch my wounds. You know I've already been. This is it. It's done. It is finished. There's no paying back. There's no, oh, God's mad at me until I do some work for him. It's you have done the work. Just enter the throne and expect grace to flow. That's Hebrews. He says it plainly. We can come boldly and just talk to the God whom we've so grievously offended time and time again because his reflex is not to strike you, but to strike his son. And then he says, come, talk to me about it. I know what I'm doing in the wilderness. I'm doing my best work. I'm not surprised by what I see in your heart. I just wanted you to see it so we could start to get to work on it. I don't know how the wilderness is manifesting itself in your life, but I do know two things. It is, in some way. And Jesus is present with you in it. And he's wanting to talk. Can I just put it that casually? He's wanting to talk. Sometimes we think, oh, prayer is this weird thing. Bible study is this weird thing. It's a relationship. That's what it is. Speak to the one who was struck for you. Water flows in those moments, even in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, thank you that you, that your reflex is not to strike us. Or to put it the way Ezekiel does, you don't delight in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn, that you're long-suffering. Yes, absolutely You do come down in judgment when your name is defamed. But man, you are long-suffering and you plead and and you wait and you are patient with your people. We thank you, God, that you took our judgment on yourself. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would come and we would speak knowing knowing that we have your ear and we have your heart, that you love us and that you're ready to satisfy.
and give your people water. Let it flow here this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.